Steve McNamara, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Welcome to Out of Your League. And look, the most amazing news really is we've just found out that Steve and John went to the same school. I know they look the same age, but John, you were a couple of years beneath Steve, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. Steve, uh, Steve was in year nine and I was in year seven. Um, <laughs> and we just became friends. Uh, you know, it was you know, those, those adolescent years, you know what I mean, Steve? Steve was captain of the team, uh, year nine team, and then I got a game on the wing. Uh, yeah, and it's just been a great relationship ever since. <laughs> <laughs> go on, what school are we talking here, Steve? Come on, put, I mean, Wilkin now can't go back yeah. to the hole because people are so yeah. ashamed of him. Yeah, it's South Oldenus. It's uh, just on the edge of all. It's on the East Rad and just on the East Side there. And uh, yeah, obviously, John's uh, clearly had no laugh there. I was there many years before John. Uh, but yeah, it was um, uh, good memories from the school. And, and we're just saying, you know, um, you know, I, I coached England and John was captain of England in one of the games against the Exiles. And it was a great, um, great accolade for the school. Look, Steve, we've had so many coaches on on the podcast. We've had, you know, Justin Holbrook, Ian Watson, Brian McDermott, and I'm I'm really interested about the sort of the psyche of a coach, the psychology, the the philosophy that they use. And and I know you don't really get to do this a lot, and it's a pretty wanky thing to do, but how would you describe yourself as a coach? I think it's really difficult to say, isn't it? But um I think um I think I care. You know, I think I care a lot. Um uh, without a doubt, uh, Kay, it's, um, you know, when you work with players and you see what the players put themselves through week in, week out, uh, and the sacrifices they make, and probably what the staff make as well, people don't fully understand the, uh, what people uh, forgive, you know, to, to to be part of it. And of course, you know, we get well paid, reasonably paid, everything else that goes with it. But there's a huge amount of sacrifice by a lot of young men and women in the game. And... Um, you know, I just you know, I do care care certainly care for the for for the group of players that we're involved in, and uh, yeah, I like to see see people achieve things. And from the outside, John, you've obviously worked with him, Flash. You know Steve very well as well. How how would you d- describe Steve, John? Well, you know, I, I think with, with Steve, that 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 empathy, that that willingness to 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 think about other people comes through. You know, in spades uh, with him in the, in the brief time I, I got to work with him. You know, he he had a, a real understanding of, of sort of the dynamics of a group, and and like I said, empathising with the individuals within that as well. I think that's a huge, a huge sort of part of coaching. But I, I suppose what interests me, um, I think more is that how Steve, do you think you've developed as a coach? Do you know since maybe we worked together in that sort of 2010, 11, 12 yeah. period? Yeah. You know, that's the last time I sort of interacted yeah. with you as a coach. How have you changed since then? What's been the biggest sort of movement in your career? Yeah, probably since then was obviously um working out in the NRL full time. You know, was a was a great experience. So I think as a young coach you learn and I was very fortunate as a young co- uh, young player actually, seventeen year old player to to have Brian Smith as my first coach and Brian Smith was, you know, in terms of educating any player. Uh, in terms of how to play the game, the A to Z, right from one end of the spectrum to the other, it, that was fantastic. So you learn a lot about about the game. Uh, you go through your periods, you know, of, of of processing that, and then learning how to manage people more and and everything else. But then the opportunity to go coaching the NRL probably sort of just coincided as you were sort of finishing there with the England team, John. And I was sort of going full time there, uh, and that really, really opened my eyes to to what was happening on the other side of the world. You know, oh, oh, there's a few old lads. John's not included in this. We get nosebleeds if they go out of all. But for me, uh, it's been a fantastic experience. You know, you do honestly. You go get across the uh, the bridge there, the Ouse Bridge at Goal, and that uh, nose starts bleeding. So that that's the type of people we are. But for me, it took taking yourself out of that comfortable situation. You know, going working in the NRL. You know, uh, I was the England coach, but an assistant coach in the NRL in Australia, in Sydney. Then what took off across to New Zealand, and certainly now. Um, the job now in the south of France, I think it's the best job in Super League, without doubt. Not because of the location, but because of the challenges that it presents. And, and bringing a group together, when you speak different languages, when you have different cultures, um, you know, how do you gain trust as a coach with a group of players when you can't communicate effectively and properly with them all the time? It's been a great challenge. And for me, that's the, been the next stage of the development. You know, the educational side was fantastic early on back to the challenges of um, the different types of pressures that this type of coaching brings uh, is what I've enjoyed. 
Was it a tough decision to go to the NRL and, and be an assistant, Steve? Because from the outside looking in, you've been a head coach, you've been a national coach, and then to take maybe a bit, your ego could be perceived as taking a hit by being at that level and then going down to be the assistant to somebody else, albeit a, a, a powerhouse club in, in, a, in a very strong competition. Was it a tough decision, that? No, not at all. And the ego, you put that to one side, it, it, I had no interest in that. It was about a new challenge, about an opportunity to work in the NRL in a different country. I was actually the head, head coach of England at the time. I was still the head coach of England, but went, went across there as an assistant coach. And for me, um, yeah, there's a certain amount of ego, I suppose, in every person. Everybody's got a little bit of that. But for me, absolutely, in that situation, no, it was the right thing. And it, it was the right thing for, for the England team at the time as well, because... We put so many good things in place in England, you know, changing a lot of things that we did within the country. But that sort of got to as far as we could probably go. And the next stage for me was, okay, well, get across there and get amongst the opposition. You know, sit there every single week and coach against them and see what's happening across there and see if that can help and enhance the England programme as well. And did did that open your eyes? Some stuff that you Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, the... Look, make no mistake, they, there's things we do in England and Europe, you know, France, I'll include that as well. There's things we do that are as good. You know, there's no two ways about it. Not everything across there is better, but there's a lot more of it. You know, the exposure is massive. Uh, probably the quality of the athletes across the whole squads is probably the biggest thing that you know. It's when you walk into an NRL squad and you see the 30 players and you would compare that to a squad of 30 players in England, you see the sheer size and athleticism across the board. Not not, not our top players, not our top end, but across the whole squad. Uh, and yeah, and the exposure and the, the um, what you get, uh, the pressures that come with that, being in Sydney and everything else that goes with it, was fantastic. Really, really good. Steve, where does that come from then in you? Because you, I'm interested, you mentioned taking yourself out of your comfort zone. Um, and, and not a lot of people in Hull and not a lot of people in a lot of, you know, northern working class cities have done that and players and, and, and coaches. So so why are you the risk taker? Because um, as a young player, um, everything went my way as a young kid growing up. You know, I managed to play for England schoolboys for two years. I played a year young and then I played in the age group. I was going to England under 21s team. I made my debut for LFC as a 17-year-old and things were going great. And then um, it was, I'm trying to, 1989, 1991 was it? When Hull, I've lost, I think it's 90 or 91 when Hull won the Premiership. And I was in the team for, I think it was 15 games straight. I lost my place in the semi-final and the final to a young lad, Dean Busby, who was actually a year younger than me. I was 19, he was 18 and he took my spot. And uh, at that stage, I remember Brian Smith speaking to me, saying, listen, you, you're walking a tightrope here. Everything's gone your way. This has got a bit comfortable for you. Uh, I missed out on the, a major, major prize. It, Hull FC won the Premiership at Old Trafford. Missed out on that. And he said, get yourself... It was when the seasons were uh, ran parallel, if you like, you, or not parallel. You could play in England, and then there was three months gap where you could either do a pre-season in England or go to Australia. I went across to St George and played lower grades as a 19-year-old. Exposed myself as a young boy to not just the rugby there, but living on your own and, and, and looking after yourself for, for that three-month period. And after that, I sort of fell in love with travel and everything else that was outside of, of the north of England and Hull, in fact. I, I think, you know, there's, there's a real temptation in uh, people use your roots against you to some extent, you know, and, and we're encouraged to sort of not forget our roots and, 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 and maybe not push yourself out of your comfort zone. But in some ways, that's a trap from, I think, from your hometown of, of people to try and hold you back, you know? And, and you know, I think one really important thing that Steve's highlighted there is that at a young age to explore opportunities, to, to say yes to things, to travel, to not have a fixed mindset, to be able to go around the world and see things as a, as a young guy gives you the thirst to then do more of it. And, you know, I played with young guys in Hull who just got trapped. You know, they, 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 they got to mid-twenties and they're trapped. They can't get away from 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 the, the life that they've got. And that's not, not bad. And that certainly isn't something to be criticised either. But... You know, if I could encourage any young player is to really challenge yourself out of your comfort zone, move town 
move clubs, move country, you know, play in a country that you don't speak the language, you know, anything like that, the exposing yourself to adversity that young is just a great tool to set you up for life. And it certainly served uh, Steve well. Steve, I know one of your big sayings is it's the decisions that you regret in life are the ones you don't make. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that 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 is the case, you know. And we're all guilty of it, aren't we? We all find reasons at certain times not to do something. With There's always, you know, even you, you think about selection sometimes. You look at selection, you go, sometimes you look and you go, I'm not going to pick him because he can't do this or he can't do that. Yeah, but look what he actually can do, you know. And, and we, we do sometimes. We, we we go the other way and go, oh, what? Like, yeah, he might have these negative points, but look at this. And and that's it in life as well. You know, I had some big decision to make um, going to Australia, you know, because... When you decide to move to Australia, you're not just taking yourself. You're asking your wife to go. You're asking your kids to go. The kids were 12 and 13 at the stage. They were going into high school. They like they were in high school. They were at the friends, and suddenly I was taking them away at that really important age, 12 and 13. So not only was the decision was it was an uncomfortable one for me because I was going into the unknown, but I was throwing the rest of my family into that situation as well. I think it's been tremendous. Uh, it's, do, it's done them both the world of good, the kids and the wife, uh, to that extent, and really exposed them at an early age as well. Did did that go down like a, a sack of shit originally, that decision to take yeah. them out of school? <laughs> yeah. One yes and one no. Grace Grace was, we're going, we're off. Ben was not a chance, 12-year-old boy, you know, it's like at that age. and uh, but incredibly, uh, incredible experience for them all. And they had to, you know, learn to get new friends. They had to, uh, you know, go to new schools. You know, they had to play sport in a different country against kids who were bigger and stronger and faster. And, uh, you know, the, the school age groups are different there. So you actually get put in an older group or a younger group, depending on what month you're born in. And all of that, Grace, my eldest, she had to, she was going through a HNC, uh, the, well, the equivalent of the A levels in, in Australia. Then we had to move her back to England, and I think all of that sort of stuff there is uh, character building, without doubt. And like I said, for me, as you go back to the original question, for me, my life had gone really well. You know, I was a 17, 18 year old. I'd not been dropped from teams. I'd been picked. I'd got signed professional. I was doing all of the things I wanted to do. But suddenly, I got hit with this roadblock, and it 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 killed me. Not killed me literally, but it killed me. It upset me, and I was like. And I decided, when Brian Smith's advice, come on, you need to go try something different. Otherwise, you're walking this tightrope and you'll either get across the other side or you'll fall off. You, you just said to Flash as well, when you went to Oz, you were England head coach. But how were you received, Steve, when you went over there from all the big boys in the NRL? Oh, great. You know, um, you know, I was there to do a job. I was there to, to try and help improve, you know, what was happening at the club. And I threw myself wholeheartedly into that. The England job was, was on the background. They, they allowed me to go part-time on that. Um, I actually had a decision to make. It was after the World Cup in 2013 when I went across there part-time. Uh, but I actually nearly signed for Bath Rugby Union. I nearly went into Rugby Union code at that stage and uh, to get out of Rugby League. Yeah, because after the after the, after the the 2013 World Cup and that final, which was, you know, went down to you know the last 20 seconds of the game. Sean Johnson getting that try. It was like what was next in rugby league, you know, like what could you follow after being involved in that? Um, rugby union started to, you know, like I said the bath was an opportunity, but then the NRL came and I thought, you know what, this is, this is the one, this is the opportunity, not not just for the the coaching career but the the experience as well of, of taking myself away so uh yeah interesting times and what was trent robinson like to, to work with because obviously he was there and he's he's he's, he's revered as one of the best coaches yeah. in the world now what, what was he like to work with yeah trent trent's a, a great coach you know an absolute fantastic coach it had a few experiences you see back here so um trent uh obviously was, was had been coaching in france he come and spent some time with us at, at Bradford Bulls when I was at, at Bradford uh, back then. Uh, he actually interviewed for uh, the Newcastle Knights assistant coach's job under Brian Smith in my office at Bradford Bulls. It was like, it was all sort of connected. And then uh, then he got the Catalans job uh, you know, and spent some time across here. So we had a close connection. We wet, not wet to each other, but we liaised and... and um, 
you know, thrown that he's passed each other for a long period of time. And he'd actually offered me the job a year earlier, but it was the World Cup year. So I, I wouldn't go in that year. And then I thought the opportunity had gone. I think his assistant, Paul Green, left to, to go get an head coach's job at North Queensland and the job came along again. But now Trent's a very, very well-educated man. Very, very uh, thorough in what he does. Uh, and he's got a tremendous group of staff around him that the Roosters to help enhance what they've, they've already got. Steve Wilco mentioned it earlier on and he said that, you know, you've, he asked you the question how you've developed as a coach. You, you got the England job in 2010 and that was on the back of, of Bradford being relegated. Do, when you look back on that and how much you've changed and how much you've improved as a coach and as, and as a human being, do, do you think that that England job came too early and do you almost think you'd, you'd love another crack at it now, 10 years on? No, it didn't come too early. Um, and I don't regret one thing that we did with that England programme. Where, where the England programme was and where we took it to was sensational. And John was a, a, one of the major parts of that. There's some of the senior players, the, some of the things they took on board and some of the problems they recognised, what existed within the England team at that stage, you know, and as moving to Loughborough University, having an identity, aligning the pro, the England Knights programme to the seniors, to the under-18s, to the 16s, all of that was really helped and pushed by the senior players. The biggest advantage I had with uh, the England job was that I was the assistant coach to Tony Smith first. Because I saw the difficulties that Tony faced. Like, and there weren't mistakes that Tony faced, did. It was just the problems that he faced and I could see them first hand. Now, if I hadn't have seen that, I maybe would have come in with a completely different mindset and gone, we're going to change this or do this or do that. But... It was clear, it was quite clear from being the assistant that there was probably three or four major things that we could do that would have a major impact on the team. And there was about 10 or 15 other things that you'd like to do, but you probably couldn't do and won't really have as big an impact as you wanted anyway. So I was very fortunate in that. The Bradford Bulls scenario, that was, again, as a as a learning experience, you know, incredibly tough times, great times as an head coach, but some tough times and some great learning opportunities as well. You know, I got the job within off. 10 days. Yeah, within 10 days of me getting that job at, Bra at Bradford, uh, Stuart Fielding came and asked for a transfer. And it was, we ended up with a world record £440,000 transfer, but you're losing your, you know, your, your number one front rower. And, but was doing that, was selling him to, to keep the club alive, basically. On the back of that, Sam Burgess comes through and emerges and, and everything else that comes with it. And you was there, Mark, as well, at the time as well. So... I don't uh, think I was missed as much as Stu was, Sam, either, though. Uh, <laughs> I, got, I cost 10 grand. <laughs> that is... 10 grand. 10 grand. Yeah. Money well spent, Matt. Money well That's spent. What's, I'll have that. I'm taking yeah. that. Yeah. Steve, yeah. what were your... What were your um, biggest challenges then when you got that England job? Like you say, you came through under Tony Smith. Uh, one of them, I know you tried to sort of remove the club versus club mentality. And Wilco, you've touched on this in the past and said that, that well, it didn't always disappear, especially when, when you were, were on tours, John. Yeah, well, no, I think there was a real heavy weighting around the time I first got involved in the international team. And it was Leeds and Saints. And there was, a, a, you know, six or seven lads, maybe eight lads from each of the teams. And... Um, I look back and I think probably that wasn't really addressed or dealt with. There wasn't, you know, aside from getting on the piss after a test match, there wasn't an awful lot done to really address those things. And this is what Steve did, is he came in and redefined re what the international setup was about and set high... Uh, before that, I'll be honest, our club, St. Helens, set higher standards than the international team that I that I'd played for, and 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 the standards at, at training, the facilities, uh, you know, all of that stuff was a higher standard at the club. So to change that, I think what the thing that Steve did is 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 make the international setup more professional, more thorough, more detailed, more elite than it had ever been. And I can tell you firsthand, I went from. 2005 to 2011, Four Nations final, that sort of period. And it was the international, I'm not just saying this because Steve's here because I've said it in, in the past as well. It was unrecognisable, the difference by the time we got to that, you know, the early parts of 2010-11 in, in, in terms of professionalism. You know, the peak of, I'd say maybe unprofessional was the 2006 tour to Australia, which was 
I think he's still regarded as, although it was successful in some ways, a bit of a debacle as well. And, and, and you know, I think it, it really changed and it needed to change as well. And, and, and it was for the better. And, the, you know, we had some great times down at Loughborough. I remember going to Loughborough. And one of the really visible things that changed when uh, Steve Wood got in charge was, I know this sounds really pathetic and it's not even anything that you should think about, is... The uh, the kit man used to organise the balls into like a little pyramid on the side. Tackle shields were all lined up. Like the pitch training field was like a work of art before we went onto it. Yeah. You know, and that's detail. And when you start then drilling into detail like that, you're getting somewhere. And that, that was a, a real big thing that I learned from that time in my life. Mm. Steve, am I right in saying, I mean, you, you talked about, you know, the upset of losing that semi-final against New Zealand. Um, and and players crying in the dressing room, etc. Am, am I right in, in saying that you found out you'd lost your job by watching on on telly? Yeah, yeah, I did. You know, <clears throat> and which was disappointing. You know, but you know, people always make decisions. You know, whether you agree with them or not, and that decision was made at that stage. But yeah, just that. And the thing, what what was I was it, I was in Australia at the time. Was watching TV with the misses and kids, and it started rolling around. Dominic you know, Quirrell's around the bottom of Slate Sky News, and there's a Wayne Bennett appointed the England coach, and that was the first I heard of it, um, which sort of you know hurt. And when you invest, you see, when you're international coach as well, uh, particularly if you're working at a club as well, you work all year at the club, and then you invest the, the short period of time you have, and the players do as well in the off season in the international so your family does does uh, you have to sacrifice a lot for your family so to sit there and, and it was you know the kids were upset as much as I more than I was if you know what I mean it, it was seeing them being upset what what's the bit what hurts you but uh, yeah not the best way to find out the news but um, there you go how do you deal with that jeopardy you know coaching is a precarious job isn't it Steve do you know how do you deal with, yeah. with that side of it because you know, being a player is quite precarious, but but being a coach, you know, historically is one of the, you know, the, I suppose that's the least longevity out of a lot of jobs. So how do you, does that ever cross your mind? How do you deal with and process all that sort of stuff? Yeah, I think you sort of, you know, you just, it's part of the job, John, it's what we do. It becomes normal. It, it's not something you sort of crosses your mind all the time and you're thinking about all the time. It just becomes the normal. Um, so, you know, if you sit there and worry about that and think about it too many times, then then obviously you're going to slip up at times. But um, no, it's just, uh, yeah, you, you enter it. You know, some people last longer than others and some people get second opportunities. And, you know, some like Lee Radford, great to see him getting a, a second opportunity. Some people, you know, get the one chance and that's it. You never see him again. So... Um, you know, I, I've been fortunate to um, work at some great clubs, some fantastic clubs in some great countries. Um, but you're right, you know, you never know when that's going to end. So uh, you've got to be careful that, you know, with finances and everything else that goes with it. But um, I think the biggest thing there, John, is as well as you've got to enjoy it whilst you're doing it as well. You know, you, sometimes you stress and you think, and we do, you know, as coaches, we do. Uh, there's lots of many things to think about there's lots of sleepless nights but sometimes you've got to sit back in reality and enjoy what you're doing at the stage and if you do that you'll probably perform better as a coach as a player as well and do you still enjoy it as much now as when you started because you obviously have to have a, you have to have a passion and, 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 and a detailed like yeah. view to, to, to want to get into coaching but do you still enjoy it now as you first did or has the enjoyment changed as time's gone on no it probably gets stronger that bond gets stronger the longer you're in that re a relationship the longer the stronger that bond sort of gets and it's funny because it, it, as a coach I'll tell you that there's for me there's a, a two or three hour window after a win where like because you work so much in the week to prepare a team and then you the players go out and you get that performance and you get that win and there's this two or three hour gap where you go and for us at the minute it's the it's, if it's an away victory it's on the bus Going back to the airport, getting on the airport, boys having a laugh, having a joke, getting back to France. But you wake up the next day and you know you've got to start again. You know, it's that weekly treadmill, uh, what goes round. So, but um, that high, that elation of those, you know, two or three hours there is, uh, you know, and seeing the seeing the, your players, you know, seeing the players enjoy success is, is does make it worthwhile. And how's how's the last twelve months been, Steve? With 
with COVID and all the obstacles that most teams have had to to encounter, how has it been at Catalan? Because it's been quite unique what they've had, you guys have had to do week in, week out. And how has it brought the team and, and each individual and the players t- together? Yeah, it it's been a extremely difficult. You know, quite clearly the financial cost for us as a team getting across on private flights is, is well known. It's out there. You know, we've had to sacrifice home Challenge Cup games, home league games and, and fly across and everything else. The, the hardest thing and the biggest thing uh, is um, the the inability to see your families. So I know there's been COVID in England. Most of the players in England, you know, the families, if you play for Wakefield, your family might live in Castleford. And although you might not be able to spend as much time with them, you're close in contact with them and... Yeah, you can potentially see him, but at a distance, etc. Like we've got, we've got players here uh, who've, who've had children. You know, uh, the grandkid, the grandparents haven't been able to see him. We had Israel Falau situation where his mother-in-law was seriously ill, and it's affected him being able to come back. Uh, and that's been the hardest thing because uh, across here, obviously, we've got a very cosmopolitan team. We've got French players, but we've got the English players. You know, my family's not been able to visit for the best part of a year now. My parents, you know, or, or my wife or children, anybody. So that's been the most difficult bit. But in those situations, they have to rely on each other. There's nobody else you can rely on. We've only got each, each other. We've only got ourselves. And I think you can see that um, this year, you know, that we, we've probably got less experience than we've had for a number of years within our team now. Uh, but we're certainly playing well as a, as a group together. We can tell you're in France because I think we just heard the gendarme sirens going past in the background. Um, <laughs> yeah, I hope they're yeah. not coming for you. Uh, yeah. But you, you mentioned it there, Steve. The you personally being on your own, and I know there's all sorts of people during the, the pandemic and during COVID who've got similar stories. And you know, you might just reply and say, "Oh, boohoo!" You know, we've just got to crack yeah. on with it. But that's got to be difficult for over a year. You haven't seen the misses and haven't seen the kids, and you know, in, in the flesh. Yeah, it was it was actually it was strange because the first lockdown, right back last year, this time last year, wasn't it? When it was in that sort of three month lockdown, I actually came back and it was the first time because the lockdown was you know we thought it was going to be a couple of weeks and it was quite clear it was going to be months. I actually managed to get through. I drove back. I got an attestation from Bernard the owner, so I could get through France into England and uh, managed to spend three months at home. And I'll, I'll honestly say. It was a great three months. I t- like I wasn't worried about anybody missing a tackle at the weekend. I wasn't worried about what we were going to sign the following year or who's got injured it, it, because you couldn't. There was you couldn't, and it was the first time for such for years and years and years that I'd actually had a clear mind. And you know the the players will tell you. You know you, you might be at home with the family, but you're not really listening at times when you're a player or a coach. Your mind's wandering all the time. But that was genuinely the first time for a long time be able to spend some good time with them after that obviously it's become more difficult now uh, with the travel restrictions and everything else um, but there's a lot of people in a far worse off situation than themselves it's our job it's what we we decide to do we actually decide to do this so sometimes you, know, you get the positives from it and sometimes the negatives well, and, and developing the geography of rugby league has its negatives for you guys as well, because just where you're placed, it's a beautiful part of the world in Perpignan. But your owners then having to pay fifty grand to to charter planes from France to get players to grounds—incredible. Yeah, he's. Uh, I think it's well known. He's a he's a butcher. He's an abattoir. He supplies meat. He's chasing cows everywhere across France at the minute, so he can pay for these flights and chop them up and get them out there and, ev- and everything else but he, he's done a great job for us and we're really really grateful for him I mean the Challenge Cup is a great example of that the Challenge Cup well, uh, after we won the Challenge Cup in 2018 they changed the rules on us and we have to basically if we draw an home team we have to pay for the away team to come if we draw away we have to pay for ourselves we, there's a lot of cost involved uh, Toulouse decide not to go in the competition our owner, even though he knows it's going to cost him a fortune, regardless of how far we go, uh, you know, just insist that we're in that competition. So we are grateful for him. What kind of an impact did that uh, the Challenge Cup win have for for the club? I think it gave it some real belief, Mark. It was, um, and it and it was, you know, it's the first trophy uh, the club had ever won. You know, we're only fifteen years old as a club, and that and that's the thing, like. You know, look at Super League, and since 1996, it's a, it's a travesty in my opinion that there's only four teams won it 
I know you'll have enjoyed it because you've been involved in those teams there that have won it. You know, Saints, Wigan, Leeds and Bradford. Obviously, Bradford are in the Championship. But it's a travesty that there's only three teams in that or four teams in that period, in my opinion, that have won it. And it should be more. Um, we're only 15 years old. We're still establishing the roots, if you like. You know, Clubs in England are 100, 125 years old. So getting the first trophy... Um, at such a young age was great. We we're all chasing that grand final. We we're all trying to chase what the only four, those four teams have done. Uh, but it gave the club some real impetus, some real belief. It helped us attract some other players. Um, and we're, we're full steam ahead now, trying to be, you know, one of the first teams outside that four to actually go and crack on and, and win a grand final. Someone's going to do it soon. I think someone's going to do it soon. What are the, Steve the big challenges that you that you face then? You know, be, being where you are and being outside of the UK as as Catalan Dragons, what are the, the biggest obstacles in your way? Uh, it's the time lost on the training field through our travel. Um, so, I'll use an I'll use an example, um, we've got a hull, we've got a hull on Monday, uh, Monday night. Great, you know, I think it's five six thousand people out back in, so we're all excited by that, and we want to go there. Um, Are you going to get a nosebleed as you go over the bridge? Probably, both ways, both ways. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, but we will get probably get back home at four in the morning uh, for that. And then we play again on the Saturday. So it, it's a really interesting, it's a, fan, it's a fantastic challenge for us as coaches, the players, for the conditioning staff, the rehab staff, everybody else to get team fit after losing a full night's sleep to go again a few days after. We all know what it's like after we've had too many few beers and stayed up too late and it takes us a few days to recover from that. So that's one of the challenges. And then the, the probably the biggest challenge is being a, being a team that, that speaks two different languages. We, we understand each other. We get each other. The rugby side of it's great. When things are going good, it's great. Everyone's connected. But under those most extreme pressure moments, and again, the players will, will know what I'm talking about, where those real crucial parts of the game, the challenge of keeping that connection there because you fall back into your natural, your natural way of speaking, and, and you can lose connection. All those types of things are things that other clubs don't have to contend with, uh, but we do, and that's why I love the job because it's not the same as I'll say this in the nicest way. It's not the same as doing any job along the M62 corridor. This is completely, completely different. Now, for for example, as a for example, as a coach, when I first walk in here, you know, take over a team that's. That's trying to fight its way out of a million pound game. That's what we were basically doing. Everything was negative around the place. So as the coach, if I come in, I can't speak the language, I can't communicate. If, if only I talk is negative to them, we're only going to get negative responses. So it was about a lot of positive coaching. It was about gaining trust of the players. Players, players rely on the coaches to give them information. I was relying on the players to give me information. I couldn't speak so I was asking them for their help they were helping me I was helping them and you do that and you create a bond between yourselves even though you can't speak and uh, that's stayed quite strong ever since Can you speak French now Steve? I can speak a little bit John I, I can understand it um, a lot lot more I can in a controlled environment uh, all the conversation all the, uh, uh, a decent conversation still difficult when you get in a room and everyone's going at the same time that type of stuff but um, it, it's 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 not been my greatest uh, achievement. I will say I would like to have uh, be further on than, than I actually am. Um, but if, funnily, when I first come, I can't really concentrate on the French. You like for, I think we won two of our first eleven games. I thought, well, I'm going to be speaking French. Sat back on my couch in all here unless I uh, <laughs> unless we start winning games. <laughs> So I quite quickly realised that although speaking French would be really, really nice, I think we ought to concentrate on winning some games. So thankfully we turned it around and we won at Wembley. But yeah, there you go. I think it's really interesting it because I, I know I've work, worked with coaches a lot and, and, and you know, Steve, that, that players hang on the coach's words and, and they hang on how they say them. And, you know, there's more than just words, isn't it? The delivery of those words at the right point can be powerful. Yeah. And, and players take different things from everything, you know. So I, I can imagine how much of a challenge that is to to sort of navigate through, you know, when you can articulate yourself perfectly in the English language, yeah. and then having to just the nuanced side of your coaching to then translate that to the French guys. That must be that must still be a big challenge. That 
it's a huge challenge, uh, keeping it simple, making sure it's got clarity about it, uh, using some priming words, if you like, that are, are very common in both languages, you know, and find out what those words are, uh, are really, really good. So probably not saying too much, John, is, is probably the key to making sure it, it's balanced. Um, don't get that, that right all the time, but but certainly that, that is, the, is the way forward. And like I said to you, uh, you know, get, Trust between players and coaches is, is vital, absolutely vital. And they needed my help, I needed their help. So it was a two-way street. Quite often, it's just a one-way street. It's the coach giving all the time to the players. But you know, I had to you know ask them, for example, what you know, what was a what was a glass of water? Can you help me? I need a glass of water. What do I ask for? And they feel they're giving you input as well. They're actually helping you. So really, really, honestly, the most intriguing sort of task. Uh, to come in, you know, to come into a club. Steve, what I was asking you was with the with the language barriers. You, you got your players suddenly saying, "Oh, look, you gave us a week off, and they turn up hungover, or they've had three days." You know, those awkward moments where they take the piss out of you, basically. Because I because I know one of your big sort of coaching philosophies is trust, isn't it? And and it, I know it's a two way thing with a coach. And a lot of the Burgess brothers have told me that Wayne Bennett had that ability and had that respect as well. That that's something that you've taken throughout your career from your playing days yeah yeah I, I hate the the teams and the clubs that find players all the time you know for misdemeanors or this and that you know if you've got a final player who's the wrong player for your club you know yeah everyone makes a mistake now and again if someone makes a genuine mistake you, know, you can talk that through and accept that and move on to the next situation but you know if you're if you're finding players here there and everywhere and you, you know you're basically saying you ain't got trust if you're doing that you know and they're breaking your trust and breaking your confidence then you have to do something about it. And, um, you know, I've been in situations like that myself, been in situations like that within the England group where, um, you know, somebody has done that. You have to make a stand. You have to do what's right because uh, you're responsible for, in an England squad, for 23 other players, you know, or 22 other players, depending on how many players did it or whatever it may be. And um, But for me, once you've done that, once you've, you know, you, you've sort of, you know, not punished but you've you know you've made a stand there then you forget about it you give them another opportunity and move on if they keep doing that then there's a different conversation to be had Steve I was interested um about I, I played in Toronto with a couple of French guys I was interested in the sort of stereotypes that we attach to French sports people and and how accurate they might be now that joie de vivre that that French flair that <laughs> Uh, emotional, uh, erratic, you know, all of these attachments that we put on 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 French, I'd say rugby players and team sports players. How much, how much of that's accurate, and or how far off the mark is it? Some of it is accurate. Some of it was accurate in the past, but this is a bit of a bugbear in mind. Perceptions, you know, people create perceptions. People think you had. People draw Bradford Bulls in the Challenge Cup and say, they're a big team, Bradford Bulls. Uh, there was in 2003 when Joe Vergana and Stuart Fielding and Jamie Peacock, but everyone still say, oh, Bradford Bulls, oh, they're a big team. Do you, you, you understand what I'm saying? It's not. It's changed. It's moved on. Now, of course, with every sort of team, you get every sort of mix and different type of character. And there is some, play, some French players with great flair, but there's some that are outstandingly professional as well. There's some that like a glass of wine. There's... Others that, you know, won't touch a beer whatsoever. You can't roll everybody into one bracket. I think that's what uh, hey, look, media people do. That's what they do. But it's dangerous. You create a perception, good or bad, of somebody in the media, in the press. It's very, very difficult for somebody to change that. Um, you know, people talk about, oh, you know, maybe the Catalans now, uh, about we don't pass the ball much. We pass the ball as much if not more than any other team in the competition that's fact that's stat that's not a perception that's fact you know and I think that's what people need to start to look into but uh, I think I know one or two of the characters you're talking about you play with that Toronto and they certainly are characters don't worry about oh that. yeah I think Hakeem might be one of them is it Hakeem 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 he's very fair yeah, he's, he's actually just moved. He's been playing local league here with Sanford Barrow. He's coming back to England. Yeah, I saw that. So with Hakim, we had um, I had a couple of sayings. Uh, which means, are you taking the piss? 
And then the other one was uh, Nimontrapa, which is stop showing off. <laughs> but no, I, 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 was, I was aware that we put lazy attachments with certain countries and what their athletes bring. And I, it just annoys me, you know, when you say, oh, the, you know, there's a, a certain French sort of style, which I know is nonsense and you yeah. know you knows nonsense as well. But we do it, don't we? Yeah. Uh, we do. I mean, you've, 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 you've probably worked with one of the most professional, Theo Farge, I would imagine. I mean, you know, he was at, at Saints there and you've probably seen how hard he's worked. Maybe it was, I don't know whether he was at Salford, Mark, when you was there, but the no, way just, he's worked hard him. and... Yeah. yeah, the way he's, he's worked hard and progressed and... You know, really, really professional in the environment that is in. So there's all walks of life in all different scenarios. You can see the way Theo Farge plays because he's, he's, he's got that structure in his mind where he's a team-first kind of mentality where he, he'll, he'll, he'll guide his team around the park. But then I suppose for every Theo Farge, there's, a, there's another Tony Gijo or a Hakim Aloudi that has that, that French flair. Definitely, definitely. And I think what you see is, uh, and Ben Garcia, I think you're just about to mention Ben Garcia, John. Uh, ben, Ben again, Ben as a young man took off to Australia. He experienced something what was outside of France. Um, you know, Remy Casti did did that as well. You know, did that as well. Um, you know, Theo Farge uh, has done that. You know, there's lots of good French players who have gone and experienced different things, and that develops them as people as well. It's a bit like the conversation earlier on about out your comfort zone. It's so easy to sit here in the south of France and be a big fish in a small pond and. You know, he's only played in a little part of France, but you know, you play in the local leagues, and you, you know, you're, you're a superstar sort of scenario. Whereas these other ones have actually taken themselves out of that, and you can see the outside influences that have been had on those French players. Well, I did it when I was I was 21. I, when I went to um, when I left Wigan to go to West Tigers, I was signing a contract that was absolute peanuts. I was one of 40 lads that started pre-season. Um, and there was a good chance I never would have played a single game in the NRL, but it was the best thing I ever did as a rugby player and a bloke as well. And, you know, even now, like the 33, I still look back on that two years as one of the most, um, the biggest moments of my life was just to experience it and, and see different ways of living and see the way different players or different teams conduct themselves. And um, that was certainly something I took into the rest of my career. Yeah. And I think for you, Mark, as well, like, you know, you wasn't the big the big name. You want the big superstar going across there, but certain styles and certain countries suit certain people. Like going to Australia is not for everybody. It doesn't suit everybody, but certainly for yourself. You know, the way you flourished across there and achieved, you know, what you achieved across there was incredible. It's probably not spoken about too much. Um, but as a going there as a young kid, not established. You know, Mark speaks about it quite a lot. Steve. Yeah, I do speak about it. <laughs> I speak about it as much as John Wilkin talks about that one England game that he was captain against the Exiles. Yeah, yeah. I think we got beaten. I think we got beaten that game when John was captain. Yeah. I think. Yeah, I know. Yeah, Steve, I think Steve <laughs> ran over me three times. <laughs> Steve, you've mentioned um, obviously having that connection with your with your players, which is so important as a coach, isn't it? How important though is it to have a connection with the club's fans, and how difficult has that been for you with not speaking the native tongue? Yeah, that's that's the hardest thing. That's the hardest thing. You know, bumping into them in the street and uh, not being able to speak freely with them. But you know, um, they get by if you make the effort. They understand if you make the effort. They appreciate it as well. Um, so, so that's 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 the hardest thing. Inside the game, inside the sport, yeah, there's some difficulties. But rugby league talk. Uh, and words are similar you know like it's connected you know whether English Australian whatever French everyone knows what some of those meanings are but speaking to the fans being able to speak openly to the media uh, maybe to the to the owner at certain stages they're the challenges uh, different other challenges and uh, that's why me developing my, my ability to speak French is very very important as I move forward um, I want to tap more into you, you as a coach as well I know we've touched on it a little bit but am I right in saying that if you give up on a player, you know, whether that is for off-field stuff or just, you know, his, his lack of ability, is that the biggest sin as a coach? Have you failed as a coach once you do that? I think the, the thing with our sport is it's, um, it's a late maturation sport. So I think probably Jamie Peacock would be the best example of that. I mean, being at Bradford, 
and J JP was it was 21 before he made his debut. Now most kids in in England, it's the English game. They're 18, 19, out they're 20 by the time they get to 21. They um, they're either dropped out of it or they may be playing a bit of championship or whatever. But Jamie Peacock pushed himself and people had faith in him. People trusted him. People backed him, even though he wasn't producing at an early age. He ended up being the England captain, Great Britain captain for the next 10 years. I think it's the biggest story. You know, if he'd give up on JP, we'd have lost one of the one of our captains for 10 years in the game. Uh, so without doubt, that that is... that is um, it, We're not Australia, where... Listen, if, if 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 one person's not no good, no good, there's three or four people lined up to come in after it. We've got to polish every little diamond that we've got and keep making sure we're giving it the best opportunity. And I think we do that very well. I think we do it better in England than they do in Australia, because there is so many across there in Australia. You know, you don't if if he's not quite going in the right direction quick enough for you, then the next one comes in. Whereas here, you keep working, keep working, because there's not too many coming coming after that player. So I do think we get the best from a lot of our players in, this, in, in our country. I've been reading a, a book about, yeah. about grit, about, it's something that fascinates me about um, what develops resilience in people. Like, why do they become resilient? Why do they persist with something? And so JP's an example, you know, he's 21, he hasn't made his first team debut. But the fact that he continued, you know, it, it shows that he's got an inner grit about him. And it's one of these things in sport that I think, I find it interesting and interesting to see what Steve thinks is we recruit based on speed, strength, on, on you know, your body composition, your um, your skill, your, you know, your, your, your movement patterns. We recruit based on, on that. But how often do we recruit, recruit based on how gritty somebody is? Like Ben Garcia went to Australia as a young man, knowing it's not going to, he's not realistically going to make it out there. But he went out there to push himself. You know, Theo Farge moved to England as a young guy. Jamie Peacock continued till he was 21. Like, these these gritty characteristics are the most valuable nuggets in sport. And I sometimes think we talk about talent. He was talented. And I just don't think it, it, it paints a picture of what talent is all about. Talent is persistence and grit. And if you've got that, you go in somewhere and I just, I, you know, I hope the future of recruitment revolves around, you know, maybe a conversation about grit as much as talent. Yeah, yeah, don't, don't look for the talent that shouts, look for the talent that whispers. And that's the, that's the key. We can all, we, we can, we can all go to, to a, an under-14s game, under-15s game, and we'll all pick the best player because he's probably the biggest, strongest, fastest, he's the oldest, he's born in, you know, just in September, so he's the oldest in the year. But look for that wisp, that talent that whispers. Look for that one that, you know, might be the youngest in the year, might be from a broken family, might not have been able to play the sport, might not, you know, he's had all these sorts of setbacks. And that's what you're talking about, John. And you're absolutely right. The best, I think the very best players have all come through some sort of adversity. And that doesn't mean you have to be, you know, you have to be from a poor family or whatever it may be. Uh, but the example I used earlier on of everything going my way until I was 19, got dropped for a semi-final and the final, bang got punched in the nose straight away. I needed that. And I wish, in a way, that would have come earlier because it does, it builds that grit, that resilience. Um, and those players are the players that you want to stand by, stand next to um, at the highest level. So so on that, Steve, how much do you then like to suss your players out before you sign them, before you recruit? I mean, I remember speaking to Sean Wayne about this and he's a bit of a stickler, isn't he? I can imagine him just sort of sat in a tree looking in your window with a pair of binoculars or something. He just wants to know everything that's going on behind the scenes. And, and you see it in football, Sean Deitch is like that at Burnley. You know, he, he gets a lot of stick for the type of players that he signs, but he has a philosophy, he has a culture and he will not go outside that. Yeah, no, a lot, a lot. I think it's vitally important. Uh, you've got to do it. And again, if you want to talk about perceptions, you know, the Catalan Dragons had a history a few years back, you know, of your Todd Carnies, your Willie Masons, these type of people coming across for holiday, eating the nightclubs, living life in the south of France. Uh, and it was one thing I promised the owner, I couldn't promise him when I came that we'd be successful, but I could promise him that we would recruit as good a people as we possibly could as many times as we could. We wouldn't bring any knobheads into, in, into the environment. And... Uh, We've tried to do that. We've we've got some good 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 people in. Um, brought some people in, developed some people. It's really really important that 
Um, that type of research is done. You know what you're getting, particularly when you uh, bring them from overseas. And look, on that as well, and I know you've talked so much about Israel Folau, and I don't want to make this about Israel Folau, and I don't want to open no, no, it up again because it's a good example. Yeah, because, yeah. yeah but 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 exactly, and and that being a time to bring it in, I, you are not afraid to make unpopular decisions. And I remember you speaking about Israel when you signed him, and he said, "Look, he 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 has his opinion. I, I'm basing it on the type of guy that I know he is, and that I want people to see that he is." Yeah. We're not here to make the popular decision, you're here to make the right decisions, and that's what you have to do. And that's not just we're talking about Israel there, we're talking about all sorts of different types of selections, whatever it may be, retaining players. You know, there was you know, we let some players go at the end of last season, some legends of this club, you know, Remy being Remy Castor being one of them. And but I genuinely believe it was the right decision, not the popular decision, but the right decision. The same with, with, with Israel there, you know, I'd have been a fool not to do in-depth research on, on everything about him as a person, everything that was said, why it was said, the ramifications of it, the understandings of it, going through all of that. Because ultimately, I had to be convinced it was the right thing before I could sell that to anybody else. If I'm not convinced, if it's not right, I can't sell that genuinely to somebody else. You, come, you look false, you don't come across right. So I did all of that work on him, uh, felt it was the right thing for us, and. Um, and went ahead with it, knowing obviously that there would be a, a fair bit of controversy around it. There was a lot of pressure on you, though, Steve. A lot of scrutiny came your way. I mean, you, you were in the the media spotlight, not just from the rugby league world, were you? You know, from all different activist groups, and 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 not just in the UK, worldwide. Yeah, yeah, well, the paparazzi from Australia were chasing some of our poor young French players in cars, think, you know, thinking it was Israel in a car and. It was a brand new experience to Pep, and you know, I've never seen anything like it. Uh, but that's that was what was brought with with, with the signing. Um, uh, but yeah, it was um, you know a situation you know a situation that was right. I did the research, I understood it. I didn't agree with with what it actually said, but you know got some understanding of it. Realised he was actually a really good person, a really good bloke. He was really popular within the group whilst he was here. Still is now, uh, but circumstances mean he can't return at this stage. And look, he's a, he's a super talented guy, and we all know that. We've seen him, you know, both codes. Obviously, ridiculously talented. Um, but there weren't many people queuing up to sign him at the time, and you you, you gave him that chance it was it was controversial but it's one you think I know, and I know you haven't been you can't really sit there and say look I'm, I'm so glad I did it and it's paid off because of the situation with Covid and everything else but th- th- he still has a, a lot of story to tell in a Catalan Dragon shirt yeah he does and it's surprising how many people will say something private to me but they won't, they won't actually say it publicly they won't actually say what they mean and whether you know they might support you in terms of signing him but you go up there in front of a camera or want have to go up there and say it and they, they won't say it. You know, they won't say it, you know, for their own reasons, for their own whatever reasons they've got there. You gotta say if you believe it, say it. You know, and I believed it was the right thing, you know, and I've done this on the new numerous things throughout my career. Uh like I said, not necessarily that I knew that wasn't gonna be a popular decision, but I thought it was the right decision. The right decision for our club and for our team. John, what did you make of that that time? Because I, you know, I remember Steve was everywhere. You couldn't get him off the telly, you know, because there were there were press conferences, and it must be so frustrating for him because the first question you know is going to be about that. Nothing was about the rugby. The rugby was completely secondary. Yeah, it's intense, wasn't it? Um, for me, sort of looking on, it was intense. It got the scrutiny that you knew it would. You know, without doubt, I knew it'd get scrutinised, and um, it was just it is fodder for news agencies isn't it things like that you know they love that sort of stuff they love they love controversy they love pitching people against each other they love uh, villainizing someone they love making someone a hero this is the media bollocks cycle that we're all stuck in and we're all part of and and you know it it, it you know we're, we're sort of trapped by it almost that we 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 the way we generate news is is big stories big splashes big headlines you know, putting, making people, you know, um, forcing opinions underground to some extent because of the way that we treat people who come out with an opinion. And um, I, I agree with Steve. I thought what he said was 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 wrong, and I don't agree with it at all. But 
every man walks his own path. I've not walked one single yard in Israel Folau's shoes to be able to comment on why he sees the world he's, that, that he sees it. And we've got to be careful. We've got to be just careful about how judgy we are about everyone. You know, it's, it's, it, we're all walking our own paths. As our, our uh, Portuguese barista in our coffee shop, Gonzalo, very nicely put it, he just said, look, John, you're grilling your sardines and he's grilling his. And I think there's something in that. I, I, and do you know what, John? I, I completely understand other people's opinions on it, respect other people's opinions on it, but they don't have the same amount of information as I have when I'm making that decision. They're not privy to that information, not privy to those conversations or that whatever else has gone there to make me make that decision. And we do that in all sorts. You know, I think social media does that a lot, doesn't it? It, it hangs people out there, you know, straight away based on the slightest bit of information, which might be five percent true and ninety-five percent of it's not. But again, that perception is created on the back of that. And um, yeah, so you've got to be strong. You got to, you got to, you got to be. Make sure you've got the information. Make sure that you truly believe that what you're doing is the right decision. If you do that, then you can withstand any of that other stuff that comes with it. But I do fully understand it, given this situation. Was that the toughest moment of your career, Stephen? You know, tougher in a certain way than being sacked by England? Uh, no, I knew what was coming. I knew what was coming. I knew on the back of it. I probably didn't quite understand the, the whole magnitude of it, like how far it would go, but... Um, no, I don't want to say it was the toughest situation. It was a because it was a conscious decision that I'd made. It was you know I was I was comfortable in the decision that we'd made. I had the support from the club in the decision that we'd made, and we we decided to move on with it. So uh, no, there's been far far um, uh, tougher situations to deal with than that. And then in terms of going forward, Steve, because look, you are a baby really in terms of coaching years aren't you you're 49 and you've done so much I know it doesn't seem like that because you've been so young as a player and so young as a coach because there was no gap was there from retiring and and following Tony Smith etc etc but how long do you see yourself in the game for do you see yourself as a, as a Wayne Bennett do you see yourself going into your 60s and 70s doing this <laughs> I think John said earlier on it's you know you, you just never know when the, the tap on the shoulder is going to come so you can't really say at what stage but what I will say is is that the experiences that I've got and the exciting jobs that I've held and the different challenges that I've held, you know, whatever holds the future holds there, you know, I won't be afraid to do, go into something different if that comes around, you know, if that's needed, whatever it may be, uh, because of the experiences that I've gained through this. I love rugby league, you know, it's, it's been in my blood, it's, you know, since I was a young age and everything else, but um, who knows? I do like what we're doing here. I do like the project that we've got here in the south of France right now. What we're trying to do, develop a club, try and win a Super League title, develop uh, a sport in, in, a, in a different country. There's so many different challenges ahead and, and lots to achieve here right now before you start looking too much into the future. You speak about the future there. Where's the game going now? What, I mean, what are the big changes you're seeing because the, the game I reckon evolves on itself you know every 18 months or so I reckon there's like a, a change that, that is happening and, and you know I'm just interested as a coach that maybe he's planning to the future where where do you see the game heading from where it is now do you mean on the field John or off the field yeah, or on, the like, field. Well, on the field probably not on the field performance yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 well it's interesting it's a really interesting debate at the minute because you look at We've had some really close games in the Super League this year. Like, there's been some tough games. The Challenge Cup games last week were all really close games as well. And then you look at the NRL when Mike played there. Like, who would have thought, Mike, there was a 50 0 last week, Melbourne beating yeah, South. Especially uh, South, who were going so well. Yeah, a 48 0 the day after. That was Super League back when I started in, in 96 97, when Saints and Bradford would beat people by 50 points and 60 points. And probably, John at your time there as well at Saints when you were the dominant team and our game is I don't know but it seems to me I still think there's the real powerhouse clubs there's them you know that force and they've got big influence on the game but the competition on the field seems to be getting close and there's a few more clubs now starting to challenge that so for me that hopefully that continues I think the rule changes are significant and have been significant um, 
I think the scrums need to come back as soon as possible. I don't know why we're not really doing them now, given Rugby Union, etc. We're doing them uh, to bring back the real fabric of our game again. But um, I just thought, I'm hoping that uh, this closeness of this competition, you know, and the jeopardy in each game, who's going to win, who's not going to not, is going to continue. I think that's the way forward for us. And, and clearly, on a national perspective, the England national team winning the World Cup would be a huge thing for, for the game. Well, yeah. I mean, what kind of challenge has Sean Wayne got ahead of him then this year? He's got a good challenge. Uh, it's a great challenge. It's a great job. You work with uh, incredible players, fantastic players, you know, putting those into into a group and an environment that gives them the best chance of being successful is the key to that. Um, but it's a big challenge in front of him. It's a big chance. I thought the last World Cup was England's biggest, best opportunity in Brisbane. I thought, you know, the Australian team at that stage, you know, Cooper Cronks, were, you know, Lockyer's, Johns, you know, Greg Inglis, all of them was dropped out. There were, Cameron Smith was on at the back end and I thought that was the chance. I thought that was the greatest opportunity. That was one of the disappointments for me not going into that next cycle. Was I thought the England players were at their prime. You know, they were just at that right age and the experience and everything that I'd done. And was it 6-0? I can't remember. It was a really close game, wasn't it? I can't remember the exact 6-4, whatever it was six, there. 6-0 or 6-4. Yeah, yeah that, that was a real one. But on home soil, uh, World Cup on home soil is... Is great, you know. I remember going to the we played Ireland at Huddersfield, and there was 20,000 people there. You know, the bus was getting stuck in traffic going there, all of those feelings that you get. So, uh, I'm not jealous, but I'm envious of the England group this year. They're, they're gonna have a great, yeah, you know, they will, they'll have a great time. Uh, they'll play in front of all for some big crowds, they're representing the country, and it's the best thing you can possibly do. And I kind of hinted at it earlier, you didn't really answer it, and probably deliberately, but. Would you like another pop at England? Bearing in mind you are a 49-year-old coach and with everything that you've picked up over the last 10 years, it's only going to help you. And I know so much of it is down to the players that you've got, but England are in a good position and they've got some some great talent coming through as well. Yeah, I would. I, lo- I actually I thoroughly love the job. Not just the coaching the team, but everything that goes with it. You know, Based out of Red All, out of the RFL, you know, trying to trying to implement some things there, what makes you know big differences, not just to the national team, but to the grassroots and everything else that goes with it. I think the job, if it's a full-time job as an England coach, it must encompass all of those those parts of the game as well. And it's there are areas of the game that I love. And then coaching the actual national team, like you said, yeah, that's that's the best. I really enjoyed the time. Don't regret a thing there that we did. I thought we did it, you know, whatever we possibly could at that stage. Uh, and yeah, one time in the future, you know, who knows? Look, we can't keep you too long because I know you've got all sorts of stuff to do. You've got a disciplinary to get to and you've uh, you got to play, uh, prepare for a game against Hull, who, I tell you what, you know you're getting old if you're coming up against your son. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he's, you know, I don't think he will. You know, I'm not going to pry too much on him this week. He's uh, He's got to get his team and help his team get ready and what have you, but... I think Josh Reynolds is back in there now. So he went in there, played four or five games and did his job and held his own. So, yeah, he's developing well. But you're absolutely right. Once you start crossing those bridges and coaching against your son, then you're, uh, yeah, you keep telling me I'm only young at 49. And then you keep telling me I'm getting old now coaching against my son. So I think I'm getting some mixed, mixed, mixed messages here coming across. <laughs> but look, that's a fascinating, it's a fascinating dynamic, isn't it? When you've got um, Ben, obviously, who will want to, tap into everything that you've been through and your experiences as a player and a coach but then at the same time he's your dad and I guess at times he's like shut up dad yeah typical 18, 19 year old kid don't listen to the dads do they that's you know the, the know it all and all of that but nah he's, 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 a, he's a good kid he's an intelligent kid he's a bright kid and, and he's done well but um, he's forging his own path his own career and it's great he's you know he's, he's started off on that track and done the reasonable job to start with and Knows he's got a lot of hard work in front of him, but um, he's very professional in what he does. So again, he'll give him the best. He'll give himself the best chance of, of being successful, whether that completely happens or not. Well, as we all know, there's lots of things can happen and can change along the way. But um, yeah, it'd be good to see him actually. Yeah, it's great just to see him next week at, at Hull and see him in the stadium for for a short while and uh, and say look, it's been a while. I love that. That's the, the the dad and the coach coming out at the same time. He's he's, he's done he's done a reasonable job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's still he's still some way to go, son. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, but yeah, it's um, 
Yeah, it's good. You know, it's good. I, I, uh, you, you talk about things in coaching and that. It's actually really opened my eyes. It's made me think a lot more. Like, when he made his debut at Castleford, I, was sat, I had to sit and watch it on television. Like, you couldn't be there. It was like, you know, all the butterflies, like the worst butterflies I've ever had, you know, because you want your kids to do well. You want your kids to, to you know, you don't want them hurt. You want them to be successful. You know, and they're horrible. And that made me think, you know, when you're picking teams here and you're leaving players out and uh, they've got parents who are, and they are, you know, and you do, you affect, you affect a lot of people by the things that you do as a coach. And, uh, it's really opened, really reopened my eyes, if you like, made you think about the greater, greater things that happen just outside of what you see with the players. But yeah, as a parent, you know, um, I'm speaking to Sam Tompkins, he said his dad struggled all the career. Well, he had three boys to watch, so was, you know, had it three times over all the time. And some of the abuse Sam got as well, having to sit and listen, and listen to some yeah. of that as well. Jeez. So yeah, I may get some advice from him, but yeah, interesting. It, it's... Di- it's difficult to walk in superstar father's footsteps, isn't it, Mark? You know all about that? Yeah, I know all about it. I'm still living in Terry's shadow, so. <laughs> Listen, uh, Steve, we'll let you go because I know you're a busy man, but thank you so much. Really great insight into your to your no mindset worries. over there and to, to everything you've been through over the last couple of years. So all the best for the future, mate. And um, I'd love to see you back as England coach one day. I, I'm sure it will happen. Um, thanks so much, mate. Uh, don't forget you can guys uh, can download... The latest podcasts from wherever you get them, uh, iTunes, wherever uh, they're available, and we'll have a new one for you next week. Give us a little follow on Twitter as well, at Out of Your RL. That was Steve McNamara. We'll see you next week.